Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the sixth chapter, verses 17 through 19. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for the power came out from him and healed them all. And may the Lord truly bless this passage that so many commentators just skip over. May he bless it to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him for that. Lord, I know that sometimes this just looks like an introduction. But it's also a summation. And in that summation, Lord, we find some hugely significant um, things to know about your son, Jesus Christ, about our relationship with him, about his, re- the reality of who he is. And so, Lord, I just pray that as we, as, as we delve into this, that we would indeed leave this place this morning understanding what it means that Jesus is the preeminent Lord of heaven. We'll give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, pretty much this morning, I'm going to key on two sentences. Uh, I'm going to talk a lot more about them than just the two sentences. But um, one of the sentences is a statement, and the other one is a question that flows from that statement. And what I hope to do, I'll spend most of my time this morning talking about the statement itself. What I hope to do is to prove that at least from Luke's writing, the statement is true. And if the statement is true, then the question, there can be no greater, more significant question for you to consider than that. And the statement is simply this. Jesus the Christ is the preeminent Lord of heaven. Jesus the Christ is the preeminent Lord of heaven. Now, we know that Luke has been, from the very beginning of his gospel, introducing us to Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God. But if we look at that sentence and sort of unpack it, Jesus is the preeminent one. Now, the word preeminent, if you're not familiar with that, it, it speaks of the, the, the greatest possible of something, and, and it also speaks of rank. When we talk about someone who is eminent, for instance, we talk about someone who is outstanding, who's remarkable, who is lofty, who is high, who is prominent, and, and that's the, what the word eminent means. But when you talk about someone or something that is preeminent, it adds rank to it. It makes it a superlative. In other words, he is the most outstanding, the most remarkable, the highest, most lofty, most prominent of all possibilities. So therefore, we go back and we start out this statement with Jesus the Christ is the preeminent Lord. And you know what that word means. Underlying word in the Greek is kurios. 
And you know that when we talk about Lord, it can mean master, it can mean king, it can mean ruler, it can mean leader. But in the context of Jesus, when we start talking about Jesus as Lord, we're talking about his divinity. And we're also talking about the fact that he has supreme sovereign authority as that supreme leader. So when we back up and we say Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, is the preeminent Lord, that means that he is the Lord of all lords. He's the king of all kings. He's the ultimate pinnacle of all authority and leadership. Jesus is the preeminent Lord of heaven. Now, heaven is, of course, God's abode. So, therefore, we can just use heaven to refer to all that is, not some dimension that's separated from us, but the creator God made all worlds and all things. So, if Jesus is the preeminent Lord of heaven, it means he's the preeminent Lord of all things. After all, in John 1 and in Hebrews 1, we hear that he is the creator of all things. There in the beginning with God, and nothing was created that he did not create. So, therefore, if he's the preeminent Lord of all creation, then he is the preeminent Lord of all that exists in that creation. That means all matter, whether it is animal, mineral, or vegetable. And it means all people, and it means all aspects of all people. In other words, he's the preeminent Lord over the world of the psyche, of the mind, of ration, of reason, and therefore the ability to grasp and understand truth. He is the preeminent Lord over the physical world, all things that exist, including our bodies. And he is the preeminent Lord over the spiritual world, not just the evil that exists in that world, but the souls of all people who live in the universe. Jesus is the preeminent Lord of heaven. Now, if that is true, if that statement is true, in the way that I just described it, in the way that I hope to prove it, at least from Luke this morning, then that makes the question that flows from that the most important, significant question that can ever be considered. And that is simply, is he your Lord? Is he the Lord of your life? Is he the Lord of your salvation? Is he the Lord of your sanctification? Is he your Lord? Well, as I said, I'm going to spend most of this morning talking about the first statement, trying to flesh that out, and then we'll ask that question at the very end. Now, Um, A lot of where we are in our study of Luke, a lot of the context that I would normally go into here is going to actually come out in the message and I'm going to be sort of putting in as context. So let me just sort of establish one aspect of that context. Luke, as you know, has been introducing us all the way through his gospel to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, not just some man that was born a long time ago or a baby that was born, but God in the flesh. He's been making that clear. And most recently, he's been talking about um, the good news of the kingdom of God and sort of fleshing out what that is. And he's about to launch into a teaching session where Jesus reveals for us the ethical standards of the kingdom. But 
what, what I want you to at least visualize in your mind, once again, it was an image that I created for you last week. And, and in some senses, this is a continuation of that message. Um, I'm not going to go into as much detail as I went into, but last week I talked about a vacation that Kay and I took up to northern Georgia. We stayed in a friend's house in a beautiful lake house. It's pre-dawn. Everything is dark. I get up before dawn. I'm sitting in front of a big bay window knowing that a sunrise is coming. I'm going to watch it come up over the lake, I thought. Well, as the dawn comes and things begin to materialize out of the darkness, I realized it was quite a dismal scene. It was gray and lifeless because winter was coming, all the leaves were gone, there was frost on the ground, ice on the lake. And to make things even worse, there there was a fog or a mist that had risen over the waters. And so everything was just really sort of mundane and monotone and dull and lifeless. And then all of a sudden, the sun peeked up over a distant mountain. And almost instantly, the sun was just organized or just hitting right, just the right way that it caught the mist. And the mist immediately reflected and refracted the light to the degree that it just exploded with life. It was almost as if somebody turned on a massive number of spotlights and just lit the whole place up. The whole mist came alive. And we used that last week, and I'm going to use it again to talk about the church, because after all, we are that church. That, that's who we are. We are that dull, lifeless mist. Now, we were talking about the apostles last week and how they were in and of themselves quite obscure men, really not really special or outstanding in any way, but with Christ energizing, illuminating, empowering, enabling them, they, came the most, they became the most powerful force on earth. Well... That's us as well. We are that dull, gray, lifeless, incapable mist. And boy, I tell you what, when Jesus shines his light through us, we are still the most powerful organization on the face of the earth when Jesus works through his church. Now, last week we focused on the mist, if you will. We focused on the apostles that he was appointing. This week, we're going to focus on the sun no pun intended, the Son, S-O-N and S-U-N, the one who empowers and illuminates the mist and gives the spiritual power that the church needs. So with that as sort of an introduction, we're going to dive into the text. Before we do, though, let me back up a wee bit, because I said this is sort of a continuation of what we were looking at last week. So when this whole story starts, Luke does not give us a specific date. It's just some day during his ministry. Jesus goes up on top of a mountain to pray. He loved to do that. And he prays all night long. And we talked about that, that great desire of the sanctified life to spend time with God. We asked why, what was so important, what was so fervent, significant that he would pray all night long. And, and, and we, we you know, were just guessing, you know, that it could have been the disciples, the fact that he has to make a huge choice. These 12 men are the most important men in the church besides Jesus. So that was a big choice. Also, whenever he would think about something like the apostles, that's going to bring the cross come crushing down on him. So it could have been that. 
And something else that I really didn't mention last week, but I think is also important, is that, that he was preparing for a very important time of teaching. And Calvin brings this out, and I think it is significant for us. That almost, when you look at the life of Jesus, you see him bathing what he does in prayer. Now, if there's anyone who knows the ethics of the kingdom, it's Jesus. But still, before he did it, he bathes it in prayer. And brothers and sisters, what a model that for us to follow. Sometimes we just, we just rush headlong into things that angels fear to tread, you know? When we don't stop and we ask the Lord's blessing, his direction, his guidance. So we really should be bathing all things in prayer. I'm, I'm, I'm going to hope to talk about that just a wee bit more in the after church that follows this. But nonetheless, Jesus called his disciples up to him. We're going to see that's quite a few of them. And of those 12, he chooses, I'm sorry, of that number, he chooses 12. Now, we're not exactly sure how this looks. Uh, It's hard to visualize it because the the different gospels sort of give us a different idea. But some way, Jesus is up on the mountain now with his disciples and his apostles. Now, whether he yelled at them, they were within voice range, or, or whether he went down and then went back up, or whether they followed him halfway, kind of like Garden of Gethsemane, where they're sleeping and Jesus is up on top of the mountain um, praying, we don't know. But I think it is significant here that when we see Jesus coming down to teach the ethics of the kingdom, he descends. As if he's bringing it directly from heaven with those who are going to be responsible for spreading it around the world in tow. I think that symbolically that's significant. And so that brings us to the text this morning. That's what's been going on after he names the twelve and we talked about how obscure they were. And then he comes down and this is the scene that happens. So look there in the 17th verse as we get started. And he came down with them. So in other words, they're with him. The disciples are with him as he comes down. Now, when, when Luke goes on, he says that he stood on a level place. Now, most of the English translations that we have today translate the underlying Greek word as a level place. And the reason that they do that is they are harmonizing the Gospels to, uh, to, to fit with what Matthew tells us about the Sermon on the Mount. So they're assuming that Luke is telling us another rendition of the Sermon on the Mount, which I happen to think also. But the underlying word is not level place. The underlying word is plain. And so the King James actually has it right. Now, the problem that you run into with words like this quite often is that this is the only place you'll find it in the New Testament. It's not used anyplace else. So it's hard to know what the nuance of the word might be. However, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, it's used quite a bit. And each time it's used, it's used to talk about a plain, usually a coastal plain. So therefore, many people think that Jesus actually descends all the way down by the Sea of Galilee, and that is where he teaches the lesson that is about to come. Where other people say, no, he didn't go all the way down, the Sermon on the Mount, there's too many similarities between the teaching here and the Sermon on the Mount. He only came down partway to a level place, and that's where they stopped. Well, in the end, it really doesn't matter. It's not where it was. It's the content of the lesson 
And those who want to make a big deal about this and say, oh, we have a conflict in Scripture are really barking up the wrong tree because it really isn't a, 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 a conflict at all. But do notice that he comes and he stands. He came down to the level place and he stood there. Now, most of you know that when a, a Hebrew rabbi taught, he was the one sitting and everyone else is the one standing. I keep trying to make that happen here. It hadn't worked so far. But, but that's so he's not teaching yet. He's standing. Okay. So he is in healing mode as he comes down to the mountain first. And I think that is significant. Well, anyway, he comes down with them. He stood on a level place and a great crowd of his disciples. Now, let's just stop it right there. Notice the way Luke describes the number of disciples. A crowd is a whole bunch of people, but it's not just a crowd. It's a great crowd of disciples. So we see that when Jesus chose the 12, it was a real choice. It wasn't from just 12 people. It was from a vast number of disciples. Now, in the Gospels, and those of you who were here for the study of Matthew may remember this because it was particularly important in Matthew. But in the Gospels, the idea of the crowd is significant. Crowds followed Jesus wherever he went. One of the reasons is for us to see his popularity. But it is also the makeup of the crowd that is significant. So I, 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 I want to talk about that first. Who was involved with this particular crowd? Because Luke kind of tells us. Now, there's one group that wasn't mentioned. And that, of course, is the apostles. They have come down. They're newly appointed. They're neophytes in their apostolic sending. But they are obviously there and probably the closest around him. But he goes on and he says there was a great crowd of his disciples. Now, last week we actually talked about the difference between an apostle and a, a disciple, that an apostle was a sent one, and that an apostle was actually those 12 most important men, the foundation of the church, all except Judas, and they were the ones that were given the calling to go forth with mighty powers and to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and establish the church, the same church of which we are a part. They did their job well. But a disciple was different than an apostle. An apostle was a disciple, but a disciple wasn't necessarily an apostle. A disciple was a learner, a student. But the level of commitment for a, a disciple in this context is a little higher than the way we use the word now. The, the disciple is anyone who kind of shows up. But a disciple was, in those days, was a follower. And, and I mean a real follower. It's not just I follow along with you, like I follow some social media person. No, I literally follow, okay? If he goes to Judea, I follow, I go with him. So there was a high level of commitment amongst a disciple. But it was the same way then as it is now. It was a great crowd of them, but not every one of them was a real disciple, in other words, there are those that are truly the followers of Jesus, truly the believers, and then there's a whole bunch of disciple wannabes, those who attach themselves to Jesus or Christianity for a variety of reasons. But Jesus himself put it this way. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And he said that for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. 
and those who enter by it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So in other words, probably the bulk of these disciples were disciple wannabes. And we also know that in John 6, when, well, when the teaching got a little bit uh, difficult, when Jesus starts saying things like, you must eat my, blood, eat my flesh and drink my blood or you have no part in me, well, a whole bunch of them got up and left. And the reason they left is because they were, they were disturbed by that teaching. They weren't true disciples. And so therefore, um, not everyone who was there as a disciple is going to stick as a disciple. But then he goes on and he says that there was also a great multitude of people. Now Luke uses the word people usually to talk about just people. People, just people at large. Every now and then he'll use it to talk about a specific group of people, like the people of God. But here it talks about probably the mass of those. By the way, we're talking tens of thousands of people who followed around and followed Jesus. I mean, we're not talking about a small group of people. And the the majority of them were curiosity seekers, thrill seekers. They had heard that Jesus was a mighty worker of miracles so that they wanted to see a miracle. They wanted to hear who he was and listen to him speak. And some of them just wanted to get fed like we'll see at the, um, at the feeding of the 5,000. But nonetheless, they, 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 they were, they're considered to be fickle. The, the people or the crowd are the same group that one day would herald Jesus coming in as Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and just a few days later are crying for his crucifixion. So in other words, they swayed with the wind. And then finally, another group that's not mentioned here, but we know they're there because they've been everywhere Jesus turns, and that's the antagonists. Probably the Pharisees and the scribes follow him in Galilee. The Sadducees and chief priests, eh, they pretty much stood uh, stood close to Jerusalem. But nonetheless, we're going to see some of them have followed Jesus uh, there. But actually what we're seeing, and one of the reasons that the crowd is important, is that it's sort of in a microcosmic look at, at the church as it was in its inception And as it is today, all elements are here. In other words, Jesus, the cornerstone of the church, his spirit is still amongst us. He's the preeminent one. And if the church is not focused on Jesus, it's not really a Christian church. And then secondly, the apostles forming the foundation of that. Now, they're not physically here, but they wrote the New Testament for us. So therefore, the word of God through their writings, through those under their supervision is still with us. That's the foundation of the church. But then there are real disciples, those who are, are the actual, what was, is known as the invisible church. And there are the disciple wannabes and a vast number of people and also the antagonists. So we have a cross section, sort of a microcosm of the church that is, is there. And, and that last group, the antagonist, um, they're, they're envious of Jesus. In fact, even Pilate noticed that. That they were envious of this amazing popularity that Jesus is having. And, and, and it's kind of that popularity that we want to look at next as we continue in that verse. Because he said it was a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Don't miss that. that. That's pretty significant there. So in other words, Jesus is pulling people from all areas. Now, when he says all Judea, 
More than likely, that's not talking about just the region in southern Israel. It's talking about all Judaism, uh, all of Israel, because all Jews were coming from all kinds of places. Of course, they're coming from all over Galilee, but they're also coming from all over the nation of Israel and even from the center of, uh, of Judaism, which is Jerusalem. So even, and I don't think these are just high priests that are coming or priests are checking him up. I think people are hearing about Jesus and, and they know enough about scripture and the prophecies to say, wait a minute, we need to go and check this great prophet out. So they are traveling to see him. But notice that Luke also includes two cities on the coast, Tyre and Sidon, part of modern day Lebanon. Then they were part of Phoenicia. And what makes them so interesting is they're almost emblematic of paganism and hedonism and immorality and materialism and secularism. I mean, these are Gentile cities. They're seaports. And so, uh, yes, granted, there were Jews living there. So some of the ones who came there might be Jews. But I don't think that's the reason that Luke included it. It's that Jesus is even pulling from the Gentile world. And all of these people now are coming and clustering around him. And so we have another one of these great images that Luke is offering us. This is the third one. We're going to see another one in the 19th verse that is, I think, really profound. But an image of Emmanuel, of God with us. You see, remember back in Levi's feast when Jesus is reclining at table in the midst of the worst sinners of Capernaum. That is the, the, the bridegroom of heaven come to find his bride in the sewer. I, I mean, literally, that's what Jesus says. I didn't come to save the self-righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. So he is God in the midst of those he is searching for and finding so that he might save them. And then we saw the flip side of that. Not only did he come to save sinners that don't that 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 have no idea that they're sinners but he came to save the very people who hate him and we saw that picture was when he was in the synagogue surrounded by the pharisees and scribes who who were setting him up and looking for ways to to actually do away with him well it was from that group he also called his bride and paul of tarsus being a great example of that So in other words, we have had a couple of pictures of Jesus, the Emmanuel principle. But look at this one. Look how extensive this one is. Look how full this one is. Because not only are his apostles there, not only are his disciples there, but the good and bad disciples are there. Not only are the Jewish people there from all over the Jewish world, but also we have Gentiles, pagans, idol worshipers, the most abject spiritual and, 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 and moral sinners that you can get together in one place. And there Jesus stands in the middle of all of them. It is a picture of God sending his son into our midst so that we might be saved Beautifully, I think, represented for us in the book of Revelation. When we read, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude, that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is the the pool from which 
Jesus will call his church. And there's no distinction where that pool comes from. No matter what the race is, the ethnicity, the culture, the language, the finances, the social, the intelligence, the gender. None of that matters because Jesus is going to call his own from all aspects of that world. And we have a beautiful picture. We'll get another beautiful picture in the 19th verse. But let's go on now and look at what is said in verse 18. Who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases... And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Now, on the surface, Luke is telling us why the people came to see Jesus. One is to hear him speak. Two is to be healed of their diseases. We'll include deformities and disabilities in that. Physical maladies. Luke always separates the physical from the spiritual. And thirdly, to have unclean spirits, demons, exercised. All three of those, that's the reason that this massive crowd was following Jesus. But when we see how Jesus is going to deal with each one of these areas we begin to realize something. That he has sovereign dominion over each one of these areas. So let's kind of delve into it and flesh it out just a wee bit. First of all, we hear that the people came to hear him. Now Jesus must have been, we already know he was a brilliant teacher, the greatest teacher, teacher that the world has ever known. But more than likely, he also was charismatic in the way that he taught. Because after all, you may remember that um, uh, uh, that when, uh, when, let me see, um, uh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Matthew talks about the way Jesus taught, he put it this way, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In other words, Jesus was teaching with divine authority. And you remember that great picture that we get in John 7 when the Sanhedrin's really upset at Jesus and they send the guards to go and arrest him and bring him back to them and they come back empty-handed and they're furious and they say, why didn't you bring him back? Remember what the guard said? No one ever talked like this man. No one ever spoke like him. So we know that just the way that Jesus spoke was powerful in and of itself, but it wasn't just the way he spoke, it's what he said. We've already mentioned when all of those disciples left him in the sixth chapter of John and and Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, are you going to leave me now? You know, is this too much for you? And then Peter showed just a stroke of genius. He, he, He did this sometimes. He says, Lord, where shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. You have the words that open up the gates of eternity. Where are we going to go? Who are we going to talk to? You see, Jesus was the master, the proprietor. He expressed sovereign dominion over preeminence over truth, over what was known or what could be known. We have minds. We have cognitive minds. We can think of things. We can grasp concepts and principles. We can understand facts. And with that mind, we can try to determine what is truth and what is not truth. But it's a moving target as far as we are concerned. And so Jesus came and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Do you remember what he said when he was in front of Pilate? He said, for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. He said, of course, John in his great prologue says, we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son of God, or Son of the Father, full of grace and what? Full of grace and truth. He prayed for his Father to sanctify his disciples and the church in the truth. And then he stated what that truth was. Your word is truth. Who's Jesus? Jesus, the living word. So with great authority, Jesus has sovereign dominion over the truth. He is the preeminent proprietor of the truth. And it doesn't mean everyone's going to accept it. In fact, there's a whole bunch of people there, the antagonists in particular, who are going to hear the truth and it's just simply going to bounce off of them. That's why it's so sad when we read that Jesus saying things like, though he had done, or John saying this, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. Because when you reject the truth over and over again, pretty soon your heart gets hardened. And even though the truth gets presented to you, it just bounces off of you. John said this also, therefore they could not believe. For as Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they should see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So in other words, in the world in which we live, in the age in which we live, Jesus is the preeminent Lord over truth. Writer of Hebrews said it this way. He said, in all the ages past, we learned about God. We learned the truth, the revelation of God through the prophets. But he says, in this day, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. He's the radiance of God's glory, the very imprint of his nature. He is the one in whom the deity is pleased to dwell. And so therefore, he is the preeminent Lord of the mind and the truth that that mind will either accept or reject. He's also the preeminent Lord over the body. Okay? And, and, and we get that when he came and he began to heal the people in, and heal their bodies. Now, we know that there was a reason that Jesus did this. We know that when he worked these miracles... It, it, it had a purpose, and the purpose was that the teaching is what's really significant, and the healing was a way that he would authenticate both himself and the message that he came to preach, to teach, so that people would listen to him and pay attention to him. And so we have seen an amazing number of miracles already. Jesus healing a whole bunch of people. Anyone who comes, he heals diseases. He heals their deformities. He heals their disabilities. And he sets that straight. We saw him do it with Peter's mother-in-law. We saw that evening the people lined up outside the house so that they could all be healed. We saw that on occasion Jesus would use the healings to reveal something of a spiritual nature like when they brought the paralytic to him and Jesus didn't say be healed what did he say he said your sins are forgiven <laughs> kicking the whole argument up a notch but he 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 was healing people to show what the reality of his mission and purpose was but i think sometimes that i've overemphasized that and i haven't emphasized something else that is of 
great importance. One of the reasons that Jesus healed, it, it wasn't just to authenticate himself. That's the major reason. But he healed because he has a heart of compassion. He healed because he looked out upon the people and saw their suffering. And his heart broke. I mean, we see this scattered throughout the Gospels. Mark says he had a compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew says when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, the Pharisees knew this, right? They understood that Jesus had a compassion for those who were suffering. So you remember what they did? They brought that man with a withered hand on a Sabbath in the synagogue and kind of stuck him right in front of Jesus to see if Jesus would heal him. And he did. Because Jesus never allowed the manipulations of evil to counteract his compassion. You see, Luke could have given us any number of miracles to show us that Jesus actually was the preeminent Lord of all things physical. I mean, he walked on water. That's power over gravity. He, he, he calmed the wind and the waves, power over the elements. He, he could move mountains if, if he wanted to. He could have done any of those things. And yet, virtually every single miracle that we have about Jesus so far is a miracle of healing to show the compassion of the Lord. And we're going to get such a graphic image of that in the 19th verse. We'll talk about this a little bit later in the after church, but I, I, I want you to recognize something. If you have the ability to have compassion as a human who's fallen, imagine what the heart of Christ was like. Imagine the degree of compassion that he had on those suffering, knowing that all suffering, everything that he saw, whether it was physical or, or, or spiritual, was the result of sin. And that he came to eradicate that by going to the cross and how hard it would be for him to look at the world and know that so many people are going to reject that. I mean, if it is hard for you to see someone reject the gospel, imagine how it was for Jesus, who's the one who hung on the cross, so that people could be saved. So in other words, the way Jesus heals shows his compassion, but it also shows that he is the preeminent Lord over all things physical. And finally, we read that he is the preeminent Lord over all things to do with the soul, all things spiritual. And he does it by casting out demons. Um, but I want to make two things clear about that, about the way Luke presents it here, sort of in this, oh, it's more of a, of a summation. First of all, um, we have a very specific demon exorcism that occurred back in the fourth chapter. Was it the fourth chapter, I think? Um, when they, they brought the demon-possessed man in the synagogue at Capernaum, and Jesus cast the demon out. And, and there was a conversation that he had with the demon, back and forth. You don't see that here. There's no conversation. It's just that Jesus was casting out demons and cleansing people of the unclean spirits. The focus is not on the demon. It's not even on the man or the woman being exercised. It is on Jesus. It is on Jesus as being that, that absolute supreme Lord over all things spiritual. 
But don't think that he's just the Lord over evil. I mean, we've seen that. We've seen him resist the temptation of Satan and put Satan in his place. We're seeing him throw out demons right and left. But he is also the Lord of the soul that is redeemed. He's the Lord of the living, not just the spiritually dead. He is the Lord who brings life to the spiritually dead and makes them alive again. He is the light that shines in the mist and brings the mist alive. Not just in a sanctified sense, but in a salvation sense. Salvation is of the Lord and of him only. And that great salvation is what he came to do. And so therefore, he is the preeminent Lord. And he made it absolutely clear, folks. There is no path. There is no way to heaven except through him. To repeat his statement, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no, it's not this broad road that you choose which way you want to find a God. God is the one who tells you how to get to him. And Jesus is the preeminent Lord of salvation. Absolutely. And so therefore... We see that in all three of these ways, Jesus is the, um, the Lord of heaven over them. Now, I actually have more to talk about uh, as far as that's concerned, but let's kind of push it aside now. Let's finish the text because verse nine, uh, 19 it is truly extraordinary. I mean, this is one of those verses that you just have to kind of scratch your head and say, what? And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. All the crowd, okay, once again, a, a, a discussion of the crowd. Now, what we get here, more or less, is a chaotic scene, it, the way, at least the way I visualize it. Here Jesus is, he's come down with his disciples and his apostles, and there's this massive crowd around him, and he starts healing and throwing out demons. And so, the crowd starts to crush in on him. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in that situation, but I've been in it several times, and it can get real ugly real fast. When you're in a crowd of people who are suffering or doing without, I've seen it happen with water when people had none. I've seen it with food when people were starving. I've even seen it with little gift packages that cost less than a buck apiece and people fighting almost to the death over them. I mean, a crowd can get real ugly, and so they're crushing in on Jesus. Now, here's the interesting part of the scene, at least the way that I see it. They, they're, they're trying to touch him. Okay? Now, let's just pause for a minute. Okay, why does Jesus heal? What, what, what's the purpose? What's the reason? Yes, we see compassion. We talked about that. We'll talk about it later. But his healing ministry was to underline the teaching, the, the, the gospel, so that people would take him seriously, so that they would believe in him and their souls would be saved. But these people are just touching him. There's no indication that there's any faith here whatsoever. They're just crowding in upon the, the one who has the power to heal and touching him. And what's amazing is that they're being healed. And, and, and look at that last phrase. Look, look, look at the way that it states that for power came out from him and healed them all. Wow. Now, it, it almost sounds like when these people start crushing in on Jesus and they start touching him, they all get healed, that Jesus is almost a bystander. 
That the power is just flowing out of him and flowing into these people who are doing the touching. Now, we need to be careful that we don't rearrange the text. That's the inclination. And so many scholars have done that here. They say, well, I don't really understand the text the way it is, so let's just alter it a wee bit to where it makes sense. And so they divide this into two clauses. And they say, on the one hand, and Jesus, power came out of Jesus, and then he was healing them all. Okay? That puts Jesus as if he was in control of what is going out. But that's not what this phrase says. The phrase says, and power was going out of him and healed them all. Almost as, as if the power is flowing from a place of healing to a place of misery on its own. And, and, and what does that mean? And how are we going to reconcile that? Well, you see, there's a precedent to this elsewhere in Scripture. And most of you know that story about the woman with a flow of blood who snuck up behind Jesus in a crowd and touched him. And you remember, Jesus said, wait, wait, somebody touch me. And his disciples said, are you crazy? You're in the middle of a huge crowd being jostled back and forth. Of course somebody touched me. And Jesus says, no, somebody touched me. And, and he puts it this way in Luke, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out of me. Almost as if he wasn't aware of, of, of who was touching him and the power just kind of flowed. Now, on that occasion, you can try to make the, the point, as some people do, that the power transfer occurred because of the woman's faith. You know, we can talk about that another time. But not here. There's no faith involved with this. People are crowding up in him because they want what he has to give and they're just touching him. So, what is this? How are we supposed to look at this? What's the meaning here? Wouldn't you love it if I said I don't know at this point? <laughs> well, I don't completely know. But let me, tell you, let me tell you what I think we have here. And we have it in multiple places in, in the Gospels especially. I think this is a living parable. And I think what we are supposed to see is the image here. And it's a very powerful one. A living parable, you know a parable is a simple story out of everyday life that tells usually a single principle, sometimes two. But you're not to draw your dogma or your doctrine or an allegory out of it trying to make each part of the parable work because it won't, because that wasn't what it was intended to do. It is intended to portray something. And Jesus used parables extensively. So I think what we have here, I'm not doubting the historicity of this, but I think we have a living Parable. So what would this be a parable of? Well, in this crowd, brothers and sisters, we have everybody. I mean, the apostles are there. The disciples are there. The disciple wannabes are there. The people are there. The thrill seekers are there. The curiosity are there. Those who are antagonistic are there. Even the heathens and the pagans and the secularists and the materialists and the idol worshipers are all there. And there Jesus is in the midst and power is just flowing from him. Because they're suffering. Because they are suffering the influence of sin. And it is an image, brothers and sisters, in my mind, of what God did when He sent His Son here. He sent His Son with the power to heal. And that power is flowing out to all men and women, no matter who they are or where they came from. And you leave it there. Don't, don't try to ask, okay, is there faith here? Is there salvation here? Is there is it election here? Is there predestination here? Don't try to figure those things out. What you have is a picture of God's, com- His compassionate plan. 
And what you're seeing is the incredible, unbridled compassion of a God who wants to save his people. It's a beautiful picture, I think. So, what are we going to do with this passage, folks? You, you know, I like to apply <clears throat> the passages when we come to it, and I like to kind of to, to, to make them relevant uh, to you uh, and to sort of bring them home. But, you know, I, I have to admit, I kind of struggled with this this week because I don't think I'd be true to the text if I did that. Because this text is all about Jesus, folks. So really, the application, we're going to have a little bit of a one later on when I ask the question part of this. But as far as this statement is concerned, it's all about Jesus. It is not about anything else. And we've already studied, we've already seen that Jesus is the preeminent Lord over truth. That Jesus is the preeminent Lord over all mind, all doctrines, all ideas, all concepts, science itself. That he is the preeminent Lord over everything that can exist in the human mind. He is the preeminent Lord over our bodies. Over the use of our bodies. Over the physical world that we live in. He's the preeminent Lord of all things. Anything is possible for him. And he is the preeminent Lord of our souls. He's the preeminent Lord of our destination. He's the preeminent Lord of salvation and sanctification. All of that, Jesus is the Lord. In fact, if you go back and you look at the crowd, and everyone is there, you might as well just put it this way. Jesus is the preeminent Lord of all. Every man, woman, and child. Doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity, your culture, your language, your background, your finances, your social strata, your intelligence, your abilities, none of that matters. Jesus is the preeminent Lord over all, whether you know it or not. That's the kicker there, folks. Whether you know it or not, The fact that he is Lord over you does not depend on you realizing that, accepting it, or giving him honor. He is the Lord of all. And Paul tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It will either happen in submission and repentance in this life or it will happen in judgment and condemnation in the life to come. I don't know about you, but I choose this life. I choose repentance. I choose knowing that Jesus is Lord. And and, and if we put all these together and we know that he is Lord of all, we know that he is Lord of the mind, we know that he is Lord of physical, we know that he is Lord of the spiritual, what does that tell you? (laughs) Jesus is God. That's That has been the underlying message that Luke has been trying to drill into us. Jesus is God. I told you, I was going to spend most of my time talking about the statement and a relatively small amount of time talking about the question. And I hope at least from Luke's text, from where he is in his gospel, I I have presented that Luke is telling us that Jesus is the preeminent Lord of heaven. Now the question that flows from that, the most important question that any of us can ever consider, is he your Lord? 
Is Jesus Christ the Lord of your life? And I want to be specific about that. Is he the Lord of your salvation? Or are you? Is he the Lord of your sanctification? Or are you? And here's what I mean by that. We have already established, and I hope that you recognize it, that Jesus is the preeminent Lord over salvation. There is no other way to salvation except through Jesus, who is the Christ. It is his sacrificial, substitutional atonement on the cross. When he went to the cross and the sins of those who trust and believe in him were put upon him, God poured his wrath upon him and those sins were forever paid for and forgiven. They can't be paid for again. And so all who trust and believe in him, the salvation comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. But you see, here's the nuance of my question. Before I was saved, before I came to know Jesus as my Savior, I thought that I was Lord of my life. I thought I was the master, captain of my own ship. I really did. I I thought that I'm in control. And, And like the instant I was saved, I recognized, oh my goodness, I have a Lord. I have a master and it's not me. That Jesus is my preeminent Lord. And I am his subject. And the reason I say this and I put it in this way, there's a tragic situation within evangelical churches today of people who think that Jesus can be their Savior and not their Lord. That's impossible. You cannot have Jesus come into your life and transform your heart and not have him as the Lord of your life. And, and, and if you think you're saved and you walk the aisle and you repeated some words and there's no, there's, there's, there's no evidence in your life, there, there has been no desire to serve him and, and you're perfectly happy and continuing in the sinful life that you had and you go to church on Sunday and you get all emotionally charged and you think it's wonderful and you go right back to your sinful life, then you need to drop to your knees and ask yourself if you really know Jesus as Savior. Because if you know him as Savior, you will also know him as Lord. There's just no other way. He is the preeminent Lord of salvation. But I hope at least that most of you are aware or secure in your salvation, at least to the point that Scripture tells us we can be. And so the question gets reworded. Is Jesus the preeminent Lord of your sanctification or are you? Now, both of these sort of wrapping up uh, questions are sermons in and of themselves, so I'm not doing this justice at all. Let me just focus on, on one particular aspect of this. Sanctification, of course, is what happens to Christians, right? It's what happens to us after we are saved. All of a sudden, we have a desire to follow Jesus, to be like him, to love him, to please him, to follow his commands. We don't do things out of a necessity or requirement. We do things because our heart has changed, and we just dearly love him, and we want to serve him and to please him and to follow his commandments. Okay, we have this desire. But when we start talking about sanctification, almost always people start thinking about what I'm going to do. I need to 
clean that up. I, I need to start this. I need to read more Bibles. I need, to, I, I need to go to church more. I need to stop cussing. I need to stop drinking. I need to do all of these kind of things. And you start thinking about what you're going to do about your sanctification. That's why I ask you, who's preeminent Lord of your sanctification in the first place? Now, I'm not saying that you have no part in your sanctification. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a huge degree of discipleship and human responsibility in our sanctification. We want to become like Jesus. But you see, what I'm trying to say is that sanctification is more of what we remove than what we add. It's more of what's taken away than what is included. And let me explain what that means. When Jesus comes into your heart and changes your heart, you're justified. Your sins are wiped away. He moves into your soul. He purifies the soul. He writes his law on the inside of that soul. And the Holy Spirit moves into a soul that is capable of holding him without destroying you. So you are cleansed. You, you, you have this almost that sometimes when we talk of sanctification in Scripture, it's in the past perfect. Like it, it happened in justification. So what is it that can stand in the way of that? I mean, just go back to the analogy. I know I'm kind of jumping around, but I hope I can bring it all together. Let's go back to the million billion globules of different little purified water that's hanging in the air that the sun catches and shines through in the most magnificent way. Well, as long as those water molecules or little globs of water are pure, that light is going to be refracted and reflected. Again, it doesn't matter where the the water's from. It doesn't matter the race or the color or the language or the degree of education. None of that matters. The only thing that matters on whether or not the light of Christ is going to shine through you is the amount of filth that's in that water. And so what do you do? You start saying, okay, I'm going to get rid of the filth. Well, who's the Lord of your sanctification? Jesus or you? Because what you do, folks... As you pursue the one who can cleanse your water. You pursue Jesus. Jesus is the one who saved you in the first place. Jesus is going to be the one who sanctifies you. The closer you are to Jesus, the better you know him, the better you study him, the better you know what he wants from you, the better that you know how he loves you and the degree of compassion that he has. The more you know Jesus, the more is removed from the filth that occupies your flesh. Let me just leave you with this. Kind of wrapping the whole thing up in one sentence. Like I told you, I could have just taken that one song refrain and we, you know, pretty much the same thing. But let me just put it this way. Jesus the Christ is the preeminent Lord of heaven. And the question is, and I want you to meditate on this and take it home, don't answer it too quickly whether you are an unbeliever and we're asking whether he's the Lord of your salvation or whether you're a believer and you're asking whether he's the Lord of your sanctification. Don't answer too quickly. Ask yourself who's in charge. The question is, is he the Lord of your life? Let's pray. Lord, I know the answer to that is not real simple. (laughs) 
at least in my own life, sometimes you are, sometimes you're not. Every, every time that I, I, I give it up to you and pursue you, there's part of me that just wants to take it back again. And Lord, I know that others are the same way, so we ask that you would continue to draw our attention to your preeminence, your sovereignty, the sovereign dominion that you have over all aspects of our life, our minds, our bodies, and our souls, and that we would, from here on and forevermore, give you the glory. In your name we pray, amen.